And if we do not take the time to understand who we are, we'll never be able to lead ourselves. I mean, these are all landing in like book chapter titles that we can hang ideas on. This idea that you cannot lead what you do not understand. And everyone's like, oh yeah, great idea, great idea. Because they think it's about like industry or their teams. No, we're talking about ourselves. I mean, there's two great principles for leadership. Number one, you'll only and always lead others in ways that you lead yourself. And number two, you cannot lead what you do not understand. So if you aspire to impact out there and you haven't learned to lead yourself first, none, zero chance. Maybe for a short period of time and that'll be like a, a bubble. But really that ability to sustainably impact the lives of others comes down to the way that you manage yourself. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if it were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and you are listening to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. Now, here's today's question. Hands up, who's kind of busy? Busy with work, life, kids, family, businesses, side hustles, resting, do not ask me when that became a task, and everything in between. Now, the reason that many of us feel so busy, feel like we're constantly moving and thinking at 100 miles an hour is, I believe, in its most positive sense, because we just want to get it right. We want to be the best that we can be in every aspect of our lives. Maybe that's achieving mastery in our field. Maybe it's standing out as a voice of authority. Maybe it's being the best leader and parent that we can be. Or maybe it's just not waking up one morning and realizing that a window of opportunity has passed us by. You know, nobody gets the results, impact, influence, or relationships that they want without giving it 110%, right? But what if? What if we're actually all just too busy? to be brilliant? What if by slowing down, not hiding in the story of the busyness of our lives, we could actually take a step back and reclaim the power that we have to create the impact that we want? And this is the mindset and approach that runs through the entirety of my conversation with today's guest on the podcast. And no matter which way our conversation turned, every single road, as you will hear, seemed to lead us right back to that one place. My guest on today's episode is Phil Nosworthy. Phil is a speaker, author, educator, specializing in leadership, personal mastery, and high performance. Having spoken around the world over 2,000 times to companies including Microsoft and Universal Music, Phil is also the founder and managing director of Switch L&D, a learning and development company that advises and coaches some of the planet's foremost CEOs, executives, athletes, and entertainers. For me... I know him to be one of the most conscious and intentional leaders, husbands, fathers, and humans I have had the pleasure of knowing for many, many years. On this episode, I invited Phil on to dance with me around some topics that I know to be close to his heart. And these include 
why so many of the top performers he sees and works with are simply all just too busy to be brilliant, including how we shift our goal from working at speed, high speed, low impact, to working at the speed of wisdom. We talk about imposter syndrome, how to define it, how to tackle it. Honestly, Phil has one of the most unique takes on this that I have ever found. And his insights on this one aspect alone are worth the price of entry. The importance of checking in with yourself as you build your influence, specifically what he calls micro check-ins or rocking in his words, which is relax, open up and connect. The one percenters of impact, simple practical strategies and improvements you can make today rather than postponing or tripping up on those big strides. Finally, the importance of prescription versus description in leadership. I'll leave that one there, but suffice to say this one has stuck with me and changed in many ways how I both lead and show up as a parent since this conversation. You know, there are some people in your life that... No matter when the interaction, you know you're going to come out with something new, something fresh, something you can try on and immediately apply in your life. It might be a new idea, a new tool, or just a new lens on an old problem. Phil is one of those people. For me, this conversation also came at just the right time. As my family and I embarked on a new journey recently, moving and packing up our lives and relocating to Spain for the year. One of the core intentions of that move being to start breathing and thinking at what Phil would call the speed of wisdom rather than the speed of busy. If you're listening to this, I have a feeling it might also be the right time for you. Now, for those of you who are ready to take your journey in influence to the next level, don't forget, hop on my website or the show notes and download the latest version of my ebook, The Influencer Code. It covers the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found hands down to be the most useful when it comes to fast tracking your level of influence. Just pop in your email address and it will be in your inbox and the time it takes to whistle a tune. On that note, sit back, stride out, cycle on, caffeine up and enjoy the incredible wisdom of Phil Nosworthy. Welcome to the podcast, Phil Nosworthy. Welcome, my friend. Thank you so much. Nice to be here. You know what? It's it's really interesting. You know, we we've known each other for a long time, mm-hmm. and we've been in each other's lives in in different ways as friends and colleagues. And when we locked this down, I <laughs> thought this is going to be so easy. <laughs> as I know Phil and, and I know his world and I know his mastery and I've watched him evolve into this powerhouse over the years and I've been taking paying close attention <laughs> and then about 48 hours ago when I started thinking about this conversation I was like yeah. oh no hang on no this is not going to be this is not going <laughs> to be easy because there's so much of you that oh. I want to talk about and there's so much mm. of you that I want to include and so much of you that I want to do justice to and that's I think the the friction for me here is to do justice to you as someone that I know and love this well. So mm. I'm setting myself, that's a caveat. I'm setting myself <laughs> the small Well, caveat. I appreciate it. I appreciate it a lot. Let's not uh, to give ourselves too high a task for an hour and a half conversation though. Nah, the bar <laughs> is not high at all, my friend. All right. I want to jump in because I want to use every second. Mm-hmm. So um, 
I usually kick off with the question, you know, what's, what's one idea, and I know that you'll have many, but what's mm. one idea that's having a huge amount of influence or impact on your thinking right now? And, and I know that some of yours are timeless, some of those yours are very new, and you bridge that gap well. So which ones really struck you? You know, what keeps showing up um, in the work that I'm doing with leaders around the world right now is a really simple statement that I think has always been true, but is particularly acute right now, is that folks are too busy to be brilliant. And if we were, if we, cre if we were creating chapter titles, which is something that I like to do, you know, like hooks for people to hang ideas on so they can come back to it and they can remember and keep a track of things over time. The concept of too busy to be brilliant uh, is one that I find folks nodding their heads at and kind of like with an aching heart for is because we understand that from a leadership perspective, um, leadership has always come with the territory of lots to do, the sense of responsibility and the sense of um, responsibility to the opportunity and to the people uh, that we are leading. But at the moment, um, this concept of, of folks being wall to wall in their day and the perception that time is short that tasks are high, that the stakes are high, that everyone's watching, they don't want to let folks down. It feels so acute right now. And so if there was a chapter title that we were writing for this month in this year, I would say too busy to be brilliant, question mark. And the inference there is the forever encouragement um, that as we get older and as we progress closer and closer towards being really, really good at something, that we've got to do less better. So this is something that we've been circling around with folks all over the world. You reminded me of something someone said to me a while ago, which was do less and obsess. This whole idea of doing less and obsess. But when I sit with it, even just while you were talking there, you know, there's a level of fear that I think comes up of, um, I don't know what it is actually. Is it stepping back? Is it slowing down? Is it letting people down? Is it that if I were to force a gap, okay, here we go. If I were to force a gap in here to really dive into what my brilliance looks like or what brilliance I have to give or to break it down, that potentially maybe there might not be as much brilliance in there as I thought or had hoped that there would be. Yeah, I think it's a conversation riddled with fear. I think when we scratch the surface for any dysfunction in our life, you just follow that string down to something that we're afraid of. And so it's going to be different for different people. I think for some people, the fullness of the day, they find comfort in the, in the busyness of it. And the fact that even if it doesn't go quite so well, that there's some kind of opportunity to spread the risk of something's going well, something's not going well. Then I also think that life is demanding. I mean, the really simple question that when was the last time you were bored um, is such a simple one. And I know it's like it's a facile kind of question, but this idea of like, well, I don't want to be bored. The encouragement to educate ourselves more than we entertain ourselves, the amount of times that we're giving to screens, like the, the lack of quietness and stillness in people's lives. I think there's a number of reasons why, but you don't have to look very far to find the reasons why we enjoy busyness a little bit more than we do the discomfort at times of sitting with ourselves and just finding solace in the fact that we are enough in and of ourselves. Now, this is particularly so um, for very, very high achievers or for people with high aspirations. And then you multiply that by the fact that we have taken on board that if it's going to happen, it's obviously going to happen now, because if it doesn't happen in a three to five year window, this thing is not going to happen at all. 
at risk of using too many minutes at this time in a conversation, I maybe my first partner ever in the United States was a clothing company by the name of the Brooklyn Circus. Now the founder, a genius of a man called Ouija Theodore, Ouija Theodore. And when uh, the Brooklyn Circus was founded, Ouija Theodore built a 100 year plan for this clothing company. Now they are crushing it by anybody's estimation. They are stocked in the world's greatest stores, Harrods and Saks, they're doing a really great job. Maybe somewhere between year 15 and year 20 now. But I remember talking to Ouija about 15 years ago and saying, you know you're gonna be dead right. 100 years is a long time into the future. Like, what's the go with the 100 year plan? And the response was very lucid and very simple. And he said, hey look, we're trying to build America's next great legacy brand in the vein of Polo Ralph Lauren, and you can't build legacy in five years. Plus, it's gonna to put too much pressure on me to get it all done fast, and I bet you we won't do our best work at speed anyway. So if we're gonna have a great 100 years, well, our ninth decade should look like this. And then our eighth decade should look like this. And that means that somewhere in our 50s, we should be doing this kind of stuff, which means probably in our 30s and 40s, we should be doing this kind of stuff. And so here's what we're doing now. What he found is even just playing a longer term game relieved that burden, that anxiousness that he had to get it all done now. And ironically, and you probably hear the kick in the story that was coming, um, he's ahead of schedule anyway. And he's ahead of schedule because of that dispensation of not needing it to all happen now. And in the ease at which the planning and the thinking comes and the generosity that comes by not trying to clutch at things, they're ahead of schedule. And so I'm always reminded that this, this fear of um, not getting there, not doing it fast enough, not doing the right things, actually causes people to try and overdo it too fast, too soon, which kind of upends the cart anyway. Hence the question, too busy to be brilliant. All right. So let's, let's talk about you in that sentence, in that question, mm -hmm. too busy to be brilliant question mark. What are you doing right now? Because we had a whole conversation before we went on air, which is always the way about the busyness of our lives right now scaling businesses, small children, um, or, you know, you mentioned this incredible thing that, you know, everything seems to happen at once. What do you, what disciplines do you have? What habits, what flow do you have to stop yourself from being too busy to be brilliant? Look, I do have hard stops. I do have hard stops. I have children. That's a hard stop. Mm -hmm. I grew up in a household where um, I love and respect my folks. Don't get me wrong about this. But I grew up with a mum who really didn't enjoy working. And so when she was at work, all she could do was think about holidays. And ironically, when she was on holidays, all she could do is think about work. And this, this beautiful role model that we had, me and my brothers, with regards to an encouragement to be present. So I have hard stops at the end of the day where I want to go home and switch it all off. Because I tell you what, I have a seven-year-old daughter and a three-year-old boy who we are going to have for a moment in time, a blink of the eye. Now, we, of course, we get to do life together. But in these kind of precious moments, I don't want to trade away the best parts of my time with them for something that in five or ten years I'll be like, what was that thing again? I don't want to like, I don't want to do the bum trade. And so structurally, what the day looks like is going for it during the day. So that when I'm at home, I'm guiltless with regards to being present with my kids. Now that's 
as much something that we've incubated as a practice, as much as something that takes practice. Um, all of our partners are in the United States as well. I mean, we do work with uh, the AFL here in Australia, but the vast majority of our partnerships are based out of the United States. So Mondays doesn't cross over. We're, our offices are here in Byron Bay. So Mondays for me are essential to the rhythm of the week to make sure that I catch my breath, that I'm looking after me, that I'm considering the question, what would it take for me to do the best work of my life? And making sure that I don't crowd out. You can, be, you can have a very full schedule, but we also know that you can be moving at a pace where wisdom isn't easily available. Like I find that when I go on holidays, um, Jules, it takes a couple of days for me to get out of the work groove and into the holiday groove. I bet you most people think this too. And so, you know, like the first day or two, you're still in work speed. You're at the speed of work. You're at the speed of your mind. And you know, like when you're like, got to go to the pool, got to go to the pool. Oh, 10 o'clock is when they're like doing like mimosas. And do you got to get a 10, got to get a 10. I always find the, the first day, the first day and the last day, and I've had this conversation with a number of people, that's when you argue with your partner. You always argue with your partner on the first day of the holiday and then on the last day. You're not wrong. And then for me, somewhere around day three or day four, like you're walking to the pool or you're walking to the beach or you're carrying your skis to the mountain, however it happens for other folks. Uh, and you, it's like you've arrived. <sighs> and you notice that you're on holidays rather than your holidays being a task to do. And what I notice there is that there's a speed of the mind for me that moves at a certain speed, but then there's a speed of wisdom because somewhere around the fourth or the fifth day, predictably, like those beautiful ideas bubble up that have been sitting there waiting for me to move at the speed of wisdom, right? And so if that is true, like I don't sit there on holidays and go, okay, what's my next great idea for family and business? Um, they're there waiting for me to slow down to the speed of wisdom so that I can, I don't know, see them or hear them more readily. And so what I want to do is I want to practice, how do I find that in my week? And so time for stillness, Time for being present for sure. Time for going for it at work. Absolutely going for it. But I've got to create that spaciousness that isn't, you know, planned spaciousness so I can come up with good ideas. That is just actually spaciousness where good ideas and good life is found. Plus, I think that's the only way to be sustainable. I think the ability to, to run at full clip over the very, very, very long term um, is at best unexplored most likely is very predictable, the outcome. Uh, we've got enough case studies around us in our friends and families and leaders that we've looked to in the past to know that you can't sustain full clip over your full career. So we punctuate our lives with moments of rest and reflection and quiet that recharge us as we go. And that's built on top of you know structural underpinnings of actually caring about what you do and, and really going after meaningful things and tick, 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 tick. But structurally in the week, there's got to be space for quiet and stillness where you're just giving back to this. And also what I really heard that you said then is consciously putting time in your diary where you move at the speed of wisdom. I love that phrase. Like time where you are deliberately going to tune into that frequency and create whatever you need to create around you to do so. I want to talk about mastery with you. Because, you know, you and I, we both have, I'll say, a slight obsession with the word mastery, with the, the term world class. What does it look like? We've studied it. We've seen it. We've both 
spent our careers surrounded by people who take to the stage and who own that space in their lives and in their industries and in their worlds. What has it come? I'm just so curious. What has it come to mean to you, this word mastery, this term world-class? What, how have you come to define it? I'm not sure that I would anymore. Um, I think when I was setting out, um, I was probably bold enough to say like, it's a place that you arrive at and that you're very, very aware of being very, very good at something. Um, I don't know whether you've had this experience. This has definitely been my experience. Um, and it sounds almost cliche, but the more I progress in my craft and my art and my discipline, um, the more convinced I am that I'm really only getting started. And so the longer the road, it just feels like it continues to stretch out ahead, which I'm very grateful for. I mean, the ability to retain that beginner's mindset or the rookie smarts and still keep going for growth is critical and important. What I thought though, is that when I was setting out on, on, on a path towards greatness or mastery or really kind of crushing it in our discipline, um, is that I thought that it would be, have more of an arrival. Um, and what I think is, is abundantly true is that you climb the top of one mountain and then from there you can see, oh, actually there's much, there's much greater mountains than this. And maybe this was just like a, a temporary arrival point and a new departure point for something else. And so one area of mastery gives way to a new area of pursuit. But what I found as one of my favorite things is that having climbed these kind of like pointy moments in life where you do get good at stuff. I mean, you can look over your shoulder and either you're watching old tape or listening to old things that you've done. And you're like, oh my God, I can't believe that that's how it used to be. Like you, we've definitely progressed, if that makes sense. But once you, you are at a certain point and you're looking across all these vistas, um, you can see that there's different folks at different stages. And that's the bit that I adore. Like people who uh, were cooks who have turned into chefs, who have turned into restaurateurs. Um, people who are athletes who are standing on top of their little mountain. People who are game designers who are now standing on top of a studio that's just been acquired by such and such. And those folks now, ironically, you have more in common with those folks at the top of their little hills compared to the people that are lower down on the hill that you've climbed. Because I think in, in gaining a level of skill and expertise, um, you actually develop um, a gifted mastery, which is stubbornness, um, the ability to continue when you want to stop, um, a sensibility and hopefully a level of empathy for what it takes to actually lead. And so all of a sudden, I think this is the gift of mastery is that you come into a version of yourself that has much more in common with people from other disciplines than even the mountain that you've climbed. And I think that's my favorite part, maybe my favorite discovery about mastery. Mm. I'm just thinking about that word stubbornness because, you know, I don't consider myself to have mastery at, at many things. And I think if you were to ask me, you know, two things I know for sure about myself, because most things are in flux, two things I know for sure. One is that I am brave and I only know this because I have stepped into it enough time to know now within myself that given a choice between backing off and stepping in when I'm scared, I will usually choose stepping in. And so to know that, to make that discovery about yourself and, and to hold it to be true, I think makes a big difference. And the other one is that I am relentless. 
And that comes with its pros and its cons. And it makes me an incredible person to work with and I'm probably an incredibly frustrating person to work and live with. Um, so I don't particularly count that as a, um, you know, as a saintly trait, but I, I am, I am when on path, I am absolutely relentless. And so I love that you said the word stubbornness there, because I think it's such an undercounted quality when it comes to influence and impact. Just the fact that you don't give in, like your knees are shaking, your voice is breaking, you have no idea what you're doing, but you just know that you won't give in. So how, this raises an interesting question. How do you know, how have you come to know when to stop? as a wholly stubborn human being. Heavy breathing in this one, because I would suggest that it's probably an ongoing set of lessons going on. Doesn't mean that I don't ever say no. I mean, the, the ideas that we would give uh, to people who are, are accelerating their careers or they're moving through mid-level leadership into senior leadership, that there are periods of your life where you grow and accelerate in your potential and impact most by what you say yes to. You are defined by your yes at certain stages of your career. Now, this is, is cliched nowadays, but there comes this invisible threshold that you cross where you are now defined at that point by what you say no to. And so I think there's, there's probably a fork in the road here, which is what is the stuff that I'm doing that is not for me? And what is the stuff um, that I just shouldn't say yes to anymore? Um, and depending on who that human being is, they're going to have a different experience of what it means to do less better or to stop doing things in the way that they've done it in the past. I think some of life is, is put upon you um, that as a leader, you don't get to be flippant with your yeses anymore because you're building a team or you're building uh, a practice in which you are really going after some kind of defined level of impact. But I think that the idea that I'm not defined by what I say yes to, I'm defined by what I say no to, because people of talent will have opportunities thrown at them. Um, and at a certain point in your come up, you're like, you're actually quite like thrilled by it. You're like, oh, thank goodness. Like, I'm not making this up. Um, I thought that maybe I'd give this a crack, but other people see the potential in this as well. So you say yes, and you go and speak at the opening of an envelope, and you go and do all of those things. But there does come a point in time where you have to back yourself enough to go, actually, I have defined my value. I do have something of value to bring. And that means having the courage to say no to things. Not only does that give you a level of sustainability, it creates and protects that margin in your life that we were just talking about. But I think it is, it's you betting on the value that you can create. And it wasn't like a fluke or it wasn't a turn of chance. And you think to yourself, well, I've done this so far chances are I could keep doing this. So I'm going to have the faith enough to say no now so that I can keep doing it over the very long term. Now, I know that this was a question about stubbornness, but I think that stubbornness has got to show up as much in the things that we say no to as much as the things that we say yes to. And the only way to understand which is which um, is through self-reflection. Self-reflection, self-reflection. If we do not take the time to understand who we are, we'll never be able to lead ourselves. I mean, these are all landing in like book chapter titles that we can hang ideas on. This idea that you cannot lead what you do not understand. 
And everyone's like, oh yeah, great idea, great idea. Because they think it's about like industry or their teams. No, we're talking about ourselves. I mean, there's two great principles for leadership. Number one, you'll only and always lead others in ways that you lead yourself. And number two, you cannot lead what you do not understand. So if you aspire to impact out there and you haven't learned to lead yourself first, none, zero chance. Maybe for a short period of time and that'll be like a, a bubble. But really that ability to sustainably impact the lives of others comes down to the way that you manage yourself. And so self-reflection, taking the time to get to know yourself and in those quiet moments, call yourself on your guff. I'd love to say yes to this, but geez, that'd stretch the family, wouldn't it? Oh, I'd love to say yes to this, but I've already said yes to all this other stuff. I'm gonna follow through there. So we take the stubbornness that brought us to this point and then we bring it over into a stubbornness and a courage to say no to things that otherwise we would have jumped at once upon a time. Mm. I love that. I love that. And it's bringing me to something else that I wanted to talk to you about this theme of processing, which I, I, I didn't know that we'd get to, but it's this beautiful through line that seems to be going through what we're talking about today. I wanted to talk to you about imposter syndrome because you, you have this definition. And again, we've known each other a long time and I get asked about imposter syndrome so much how do i get over it how do i get through it and i've never really stopped to think about the definition of what it is in the first place so can you speak to that how do you define it yeah i can i think i think everybody's had an experience with imposter syndrome and because it it tastes like fear it tastes like i'm not enough it tastes like i'm not good enough um or this isn't this couldn't possibly be true um, and it is experienced, ironically, more by people who do extraordinary things and people who are able to fit into life a high volume of extraordinary things. And so wherever there is a compression of, a, of achievement, so founders who are going from like zero to 100 real quick or for like um, high trajectory or steep trajectory, high acceleration internal leaders within like very large organizations who have to stitch together at pace an extraordinary career to put their head up and say, I'd like to be a part of the senior leadership set. That high compression often comes at the expense of processing time. Now it's the same experience functionally that plagues senior leaders, which shows up as loneliness. Loneliness and imposter syndrome go hand in hand and the reason being is because they're built on a lack of processing and a lack of comparison that is healthy and accurate. So what ends up happening? Understand that imposter syndrome is the gap or the delta between the size and the scale and the speed of achievement and the volume of processing that you have given to everything that's going on in your life. Understanding that we as human beings are not monolithic in our psyche. We're a collection of parts and we face decisions and we think to ourselves, there's a part of me that wants to do this. There's a part of me that wants to do that. It's almost like two different parts are showing up to the same conversation. There's the part of us that has allowed us to do all of these extraordinary things and has crushed it and should be celebrated. But there's the part of us who hasn't spent enough time unpacking and processing any of this. And to the person that I work with, high performers and leaders are too busy 
and they're not taking the time to process, the amount of time that they'll sit with themselves in quiet, self-reflecting, checking in on who they are. So think about this. You have a high achiever or a senior leader who has achieved the world, but the last time they checked in was three years ago. And I'm talking about meaningful check-ins. Three years ago, there's a three-year delta. So when they look at themselves in the mirror, it's almost like they don't recognize themselves. And the question of the imposter syndrome is, I, like, it's not me that's pulling it off. Hmm. That's the gap between like, the achievement self and the processing self. And so often, like, the emotional part of us is l- much less mature than the task-oriented part of ourselves because we'll drive that part of ourselves and this part sits a little bit further behind waiting uh, to have some time spent with. So imposter syndrome, I have a different take on it. This whole like uh, to be able to differentiate it from just nerves or skittishness or like, do I have what it takes to rise to the occasion? Yes, you do. Go for it. Like you'll be fine. It's just people. It's just problems. These are just tasks. Go for greatness, right? But the ability at the end of the day or seasonally or periodically to sit down and go, good job us. We pulled that off. Solid effort. This is not discounting privilege and all of the humans around us and all of these kinds of things. But in order to be able to process the imposter syndrome, it can't get done at pace. It won't be done um, as a bully tactic that you can like schedule in once a quarter. You've got to be taking the time with yourself to sit down and go, we're doing all right. We're doing this in real time. Because the longer the periods between processing the greater the risk of imposter syndrome. And it can be debilitating for people who are otherwise just extraordinary, talented and gifted human beings who are capable of the world, but don't know themselves enough to figure it's also them that's pulling all that stuff off. And I, I love that idea that when you hear that voice, because, you know, it can just, for me, the voice, you know, usually circles around the question, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to do this? Who do you think you are to show up like that, to claim to be an expert, to, 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 to who do you think you are? And to acknowledge that that voice is just your under-processed self. It's the part of you that hasn't taken the time to look at what you've done, to celebrate it, to break it down, to assimilate the parts of you that are now capable of this and doing this and owning this. And so because we don't take that time, we look in the mirror and we see ourselves as an imposter because we haven't fully assimilated the part of us that can do it, that knows that we can do it, that has earned it. And so is that regular celebrations? I know you say self-reflection and, you know, there's always a part of me when someone, you know, take time for self-reflection and you think, I'll go back to the word busy again, you know, <laughs> small children. Businesses. Yeah, yeah, oh my goodness, one more task. Self-reflection, tick. You know, what, how have you, how have you embraced that? Is it micro moments? Is it, how are you yeah. doing that? Yeah, I would say big and small. So through the day, um, there was a process that was taught to me by a, a, a masterful uh, gentleman in the United States, um, who, which is called rocking, R-O-C, you'd love it. Uh, R-O-C, relax, <sighs> take a moment. And that can be, the relax can be found on the end of the breath. It could be found like at the end of a cup of tea, like just take this in the day, as many times as you can, relax, <sighs> open up, that's the O, and open up to yourself, what's going on right now? How do I feel? Hmm. What emotions are with me right now? And connect, connect from there, R-O-C. So I would rock, I don't know, a dozen times a day. 
And I'll do this at pace when I'm walking into meetings. I go, okay, where am I at? Okay, cool, I'm feeling a bit grumpy here. All right, that's interesting. Because I don't want to grump at my team. I just want to know that I'm grumpy. Because in seeing it for what it is, the emotional content, then I can make decisions as to whether I want that, whether I'm going to make decisions through it, or whether I can just go, hey, feeling a bit grumpy here, and then get on with my life. So I'll rock in the day, you know, anywhere up to like a dozen times a day because it's just so simple and it's invisible and it's easy. You don't need to go to an ashram in India like twice a week in order to like just slow down and check in with yourselves. This can be moment by moment stuff. But then punctuating my week, um, I will spend time just getting quiet. Um, there's, there's a beautiful, a gorgeous wood-fired sauna in the little town in northern New South Wales where I live, a little town called Mullumbimby. And this is a wood-fired sauna where everybody respects the quiet space. And so I'll go and spend three hours a week in very high temperature sitting there and I'll do what I call a roll call. I'll do a roll call on myself. Just checking in. What's going on? Shit, I feel pretty tired right now. I feel great. This is good, isn't it? And I'll process the week. And you know, sometimes what will happen is I'll sit there and not much will happen at all. That's good too. But on other occasions, I'll say, hey, I'm feeling pretty insecure here. Or I'm feeling very, very proud of myself. This is a big deal. You know, Phil from 10 years ago would be pretty tickled pink about what's going on. So again, that ability to process in big and small ways, everybody's going to find their rhythm. This is why somebody else's suit doesn't fit comfortably. Because our own practices have to be tailor-made for us. So some people find it in a run. Some people find it in a cup of tea, like I said. Some people find it in conversation with somebody that they know and trust. Whatever the personal practices are, they are critical. And not just in a kind of, um, this is a nice way to do life, which it is, but it's essential for, for high performance. And it's especially essential for leadership. If we take one of the highest performers on the planet, and just for a cliched example, you take someone like LeBron James, right? Who has been doing it for a long time and is famous for the way that he's done it. You don't see him training all day every day and then playing for the other couple of hours in the day. It's not like in 24 hours where he will train for 20 and then he'll play for four. You couldn't sustain that level of input. Famously, he spent $30 million on his body over his 20-year career on nutritionists and dietitians and people who will look after his conditioning because he understands that there's more to high performance than high talent. But so many leaders that you and I know, they treat their body or they treat their household or they treat, um, I don't know, their personal ecosystem as almost like it's a distraction for what they're trying to do. I'm trying to crush it at work here. If we come back to this question of what would it take for me to do the best work of my life? If we keep asking ourselves that question and have the courage to actually try some things on, we land typically at some pretty pragmatic practices like I'm going to go for a walk around the block before I come home and like GM my family. I'm going to like eat better food because I feel shit when I eat cheeseburgers too much. Today I'm going to eat a cheeseburger because I've been eating too well and I feel a little bit like... So that ability to just check in and think of our ability to achieve more from an ecosystem perspective rather than just brute force intelligence or sheer force of will perspective... We've got to think more holistically about that. So for me, all that has led to is a little bit of time in the day, a little bit of time in the week, and I tend to be able to show up better more often. Mm. And it also, that question leads you towards your 1%ers, right? 
that we focus way too much, I feel, I do, on the 25%, 30, 30% gain, 50% gain, 100% gain. But that one question, what's, what would it take for me to show up and do the best work of my life? Leads you towards the one percenters. So, you know, for me as a moment to moment practice, just noticing my lower abdomen has become a practice. Like when it's scrunched up, when I'm tensing versus when it's relaxed and I'm here and I'm present and I've grounded down. Um, another one recently was very small things, but within speaking. So what would it take for me to give the best performance of my life? Well, I think some more humor. And again, this is super practical. Who can I talk to about just getting a couple of bits more humor in there? I think that that would be, that would raise the level of work. Really practical stuff, one percenters. But you keep going on those one percenters, right? And it takes you to a whole, whole other place. I think, I think people deeply overestimate. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. Um, people deeply overestimate, wildly overestimate um, sophistication. And I don't know how else to say this. This is not complexity because a lot of life is complex. What I'm talking about is like the novel solutions and thinking that we've got to go for this new fancy idea. <gasps> like we're, we're constantly looking for the new idea that's going to make the difference in our life. That might be interesting. And from time to time, we might get some beautiful things out of it. But if I'm chasing a wild new insight and leaving on the table all of these fundamentals, that I have known for the longest time that I've never put into practice, or I'd be missing something. And so when I'm working with leaders, I think about the difference. We talk about the difference between basics and foundations. Basics are things that you start with. And then as you mature, you discard them because you go on to more sophisticated things. Um, foundations are really different. Foundations, they seem like basics at the start, but foundations are important because we all know that if you're going to build something magnificent, you're going to have to have a firm foundation. And people think about, you know, like, well, how do I optimize this? Or how do I get like the breakthrough new idea? I'm like, man, I will settle for like performance. When people want a high performance, I'm like, I'll settle for performance. Like, just give me good old fashioned. Because if performance is hitting the target and doing what I want to do, give me that every day of the week. Because if I'm high performing, am I overachieving? Or did I miscalibrate my target? So in the most part, I think this conversation of high performance is so hyperbolic that we want to come back to what does it actually take for me to do great work? And for most people, it's pretty simple stuff. I talked about my parents before, but Dawn Nosworthy, my mom, what a masterful executive coach, like she is, for me at least. Because if I call mom and I've had like a bad day, I'm like, mom, I've had a bad day. This is, she has always said the exact same thing. Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Did you get a good night's sleep last night? I'm a 40 year old man, like sitting with executives across the planet every single day, men and women that are worth billions of dollars. And I'll say, mom, I got a problem. And she's like, are you tired? Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Cause she doesn't care about my problem until those things are set in place. And I've learned so much from that because what I'll do is you, she's right, I'm hangry. This is not an issue in my life. I just, I'm, I'm not nutritioned in the day. And then so I'll eat some food and I'll say, hey, you're right, thank you so much. That issue is dissipated. And so I wonder how often we chase new and novel ideas when we disregard like the foundational aspects, like relational health, like friendships, 
like the ability to process, like looking after our physical selves. We all know that we can't pull money out of a bank account that we've never put deposits into. And God forbid I would treat my career or my team or my practice or my ability to impact and influence the world if I'm not investing into this in such a way that when it's time to draw down and ask something of it, I'm ready to go. So I think about those things all the time, all the time. You're reminding me of my grandma. She used to have this habit of, I mean, you're talking about a wartime woman, incredible matriarch, like incredible human being. And she would not let me, when I was staying with her, I used to stay with her a lot. She would not let me leave the house until I'd had a glass of orange juice. <laughs> because for her, you know, lack of uh-huh. vitamin C during the war, that was a big thing. It's it was a big, big thing. thing. And, yeah. you know, you don't go out into the world until you have that basic fundamental taken care of. Like, yeah. You have vitamin C in your veins. You are good to go, my friend. And so you, you, good luck getting out of the house with my grandma unless you'd had a glass of orange juice before you went. I mean, it, it's brilliant. The idea is you can't give what you don't have yeah. in leadership, right? And the basics. Take care of the basics. Ask yourself the question, what would it take for me to do the best work of my life? I just, I need to sleep more. I need to feel connected with my friends. I feel like I'm floating out into the universe right now on my own. Like, what would it take? Simple one percenters. Um, I want to talk to you, and this is a conversation that you and I have never had. Um, I want to talk to you about this concept that I'm playing with in my head right now, and, and I don't necessarily have great languaging around it, but this is the beauty of the podcast, right? We get to explore. Mm-hmm. The concept of fierce grace. Oof. And for me, I'm having a lot of conversations at the moment with female leaders. Yeah. Around, I know what leadership, the leadership that I have seen. Yeah. And I know the leadership that feels comfortable to me. And Mm. these two things do not seem to meet in the middle. Mm. And, you know, I I want to hold space fiercely. Mm -hmm. That includes boundaries. Mm -hmm. That includes compassion. That includes listening and receiving yeah. and then putting yeah. a boundary up when the receiving is done and the mm-hmm. doing must be done. And this idea of what fierce grace looks like from a leadership perspective, because yeah. I think we know fierce and I think we know grace. And the epitome of the place where it comes into middle, the middle for me is often, you know, you look at Oprah, for example. Yeah, amazing. You know, like she holds a fiercely graceful space. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, she is able to receive with love, to invite, to hold. And mm. still, you know, she has a gravity about her where you know that enough would be very much enough. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. So what's your, how have you seen, you've seen some of the greatest leaders in the world and you've worked with many of them. How have you seen that play out? How do you conceptualize that idea? Yeah. When I think when it's at its best, and because I have seen it, I have seen people who are, uh, you'd use the word magnanimous, uh, people who are bigger than their troubles in the moment uh, and big enough to, to be present for other people's troubles as well. Magnanimous, generous and beneficent. And this opportunity, like we use the word um, uh, equanimity, equanimity in our business, which is a... Uh, 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 A troublingly underutilized word for the English language. What it means is the ability to rise above the chaos. Um, And I think fierce grace stitches in really, really deeply to the idea of compassion. I know it was in the way that you explained it. For me, this is the bit that pops the most. 
And without sounding like a broken record and taking us back to like well-visited kind of like landing areas, that ability to, to be present for other people is not possible unless we have learned to be present for ourselves. Remember, we can't lead others in ways that we haven't learned to lead ourselves. And so if we want to be gracious and graceful uh, in the ways that we interact with others, you know that's what, it, what it's going to ask, is that we would be gracious and graceful with ourselves. And so if I'm showing up, now I know that this isn't exactly what you're talking about, um, but if I'm showing up and I have aspirations to create a team that has beautiful boundaries, um, that understands how to go for it with all the demands of high professionalism to get the balance of those things right, um, to be so proactive for growth. Um, and we both know that the size of my growth mindset is literally defined by the size of compassion that is in play in my own life, by the way, because you can't flog yourself to greatness. You have to coach yourself to greatness. And so the growth Can mindset you just say is that only, again for me because that I think is worth hearing twice. You can't flog yourself to greatness. You can only coach yourself to greatness. And so if there's something that we don't know yet and we are not ready to know, it's out of reach. So let's break this one down just for a moment because I think it is like a, a, a core ingredient of the fierce grace that you were talking about because that gets unlocked. I don't think it's something that you go after. I think it gets unlocked in the work that you do for and in yourself. I'm not convinced that you could read a book about fierce grace and go, got it, and then show up next week with your team outside of the internal conversations where you would apply that fierce grace for yourself. Because keeping in mind, you can't do for others what you can't do for yourself will only ever lead others in ways that directly reflect the way that we lead ourselves. So we come back to... Um, the growth mindset and compassion, just for a moment. For folks who have such high aspirations for impact and influence and change and, and doing great things in the world, a huge growth mindset. First of all, you have to differentiate between um, knowledge acquisition and growth. This is really, really, this is really, really important. Knowledge acquisition is not growth. We've all been sold this idea growing up that like knowledge is power. It's not. Knowledge is power if you are on the outside of access to knowledge. We've got the internet. Um, we're not on the outside. Knowledge is not power. And knowledge is potential. Application is power. So we have to differentiate between all of the books that I'm reading and the growth that's going on. I know a bunch of folks, and I'm not. this is not anti-education or anti-knowledge. This is pro-growth. I know people who like read 100 books a year. And I'm like, cool, you must be like... like quantifiably and significantly different than who you are. Holy smokes, that much you know, new ideas. You must be like a different person. And like, you go, no, not really. Because I would rather, hand on heart, I would rather read like one book or half a page and then go and noodle on it and go and work it out and integrate it into my life than spend all of that time reading 100 books and nothing changes. So here's my growth mindset, which is fierce. It's about growth. It's going after growth. But I can't go for growth as an adult without a high degree of self-compassion because growth demands trying new things for the first time. That requires courage. That means experimenting. In the most part, it means failing a lot. Does that make sense? So this is why people prefer knowledge acquisition and not growth because they comfort themselves. Look at all this stuff I know now. And I'm like, cool, nice. Are you different? 
So without that ability to balance, this is where self-compassion is cultivated. Hmm. Because it comes as a package deal with the growth mindset. You really go for growth in a way that is really going for growth. And then you sit quietly with yourself at the end of the day on all those days where it didn't hit the mark. And you go, okay, we'll try again tomorrow. In that, you achieve that fierce commitment to growth that you're talking about and the graciousness that is required. Because if you can do it here, you can recognize it in others and you'll know how to cultivate the space for others as well. So my take, and remember, this is just like, this is a beautiful idea, by the way. Um, this is your idea. This fierce grace, yeah, so necessary. Um, but we'll never do it for others if we don't know how to do it for ourselves first. Mm. There's so many things. And it's funny, I was having a conversation with somebody else about imposter syndrome recently. And they they coach a lot of the, you know, the TED speakers who are up there in the top 10. And he said that, you know, we fear the critic inside of us more than we fear the critic outside, which at, if you are fearing criticism from other people, first, you need to look at how often you criticize. Because the more often you criticize, the more you wire your brain to expect criticism, because I criticize, so surely other people criticize. You want to stop fearing criticism, you need to stop criticizing because you'll unwire that part of yourself that expects it, that believes that it is always there. And you're, you know, you're saying exactly the same thing. If you want fierce grace, if you want compassion, if you want growth first, you need to wire yourself for it. Because once you are wired for it, then you attract other people who are wired for it and you can coach and guide from that place first. This is so much of what we're talking about is leading us really beautifully onto, onto the next thing. I want to talk about prescription versus description. Oh yeah. Perfect. Nice. Um, in leadership. Yeah. And again, when I heard you talk about this for the first time, I was like, oh, where, where were you? <laughs> you I mean we've known each other for over a decade now but you know 20 years ago when I when I first started out in leadership you know if I had understood the difference between those two things would have made a massive difference can you just unpack that idea for me yeah I'm, I mean I'm writing down notes here for myself because I mean even that previous conversation around um having skin in the game like Nick Taleb's book um, and Nicholas Taleb, who kind of popularized the idea of having skin in the game, which basically means if you're going to ask anything of anyone, it's just better if you've given it a crack yourself. I mean, the good old fashioned ideal or maxim for leadership is that, you know, people um, will follow what you do more than what you ask them to do. You know, and the idea that what walks in leaders runs in the teams, this idea that like it, there's a through line between the way that we show up, having skin in the game. But you know what? I'd be stuffed if I was only ever leading out of a place where I have active personal experience, where I have skin in the game, because there's a very, very thin line between, I don't know, um, not knowing what we're doing and making it up as we go. Like just let's just like double click on the, the bubble of innovation, open up the lid and you look inside and really what it is, is just people having a crack at things that no one has ever done before. And this isn't hyperbole. Some of the teams that we work with are the architects and founders of open AI in the world. Like there is genuine domains where people are doing things genuinely for the first time. 
So if the only place that we can lead from is things that we know, things that we master, advice that we can give, wow, we should all stop pretending because there's this whole thing called innovation where everyone's given it a good shot. Some people find that debilitating. So the best way to understand how to lead in times of high innovation or when you're trying things or when you've got a blend of teams and folks who are coming from different places is that you can lead from description or you can lead from prescription. Prescription, P-R-E, prescription, is the one that people are most familiar with, which is do this, do that. I know for sure. I've done it before. Here's the steps, systems and processes, prescription, have at you. Go for it. Um, prescription is beautiful. When there is a process and when there is a defined goal in mind, when you know how it could be done. Now, we want to create space for iteration and innovation and change and all of that goodness. Um, but there's a good amount of leadership that can be prescription. But there's probably a healthier portion of leadership in the year 2023 going forwards, which is description, which is I haven't done this before. I don't know the answer. This hasn't been my experience. I don't know this for sure, but here's what I think we should be doing. Here's what I'm experiencing as we go through it. Not getting those ones mixed up is really, really important because people don't like following folks who insist that they have all the answers when they don't. What it also does for us as leaders is it lets us off the hook for thinking that our only value as a leader comes from having all the answers and having it all together all the time, because we don't. We're just humans having a good old shot at it. And even if we are convinced that we have the answer, chances are it's going to be an answer. And that's the nature and purpose of a team, that there would be more opportunity for us to do more than if it was just one person making up all the directions for the future. So leaders, and even for our own selves, we can lead through prescription and description. This one's best for like process where it's just kind of go and get it done. And description is this forum for inclusion and innovation and collective growth. I think it's a beautiful distinction that people really need to get their heads around. And how much permission it gives as well. Oh, so much. You know, to see a leader lead from a place of description, you use that beautiful language. This is what I'm experiencing right now. I'm experiencing, you know, excitement that we're going somewhere we've never been. I'm experiencing curiosity. We've got a whole bunch of questions here we don't have the answers to. I'm experiencing a bit of nerves. You know what? No one knows where the ship is going to land, but we're, you know, we're on it together and, and we're going to go. And the permission it gives everybody around you to just have an experience rather than having to deliver an answer, a definitive answer, I think is huge. And that's where innovation lives, right? Mm -hmm. It lives in the place where you give people permission to have an experience. Yeah, totally, totally. There's this thing called intellectual humility that we kick around with some of our more senior leaders and people who genuinely have built a career on being the best at what they do, full stop. And in particular, like there are certain domains that lend themselves to it. In computer science, you've got engineers and you've got pure mathematicians whose entire ecosystems are built on this is the right answer. But they'll take that mindset and that methodology and try and apply it to people. Now, people and pure mathematics are not the same thing. Like people are full of feelings. People are full of opinions, opinions and preferences and lived experiences. And so this opportunity to apply intellectual humility, you'll love this. 
the real skill is moving more slowly towards certainty. Because there'll be a bunch of folks who are like freaking out. What do you mean? Like I'm not allowed to have an opinion. I've built a 30 or 40 year career on having an opinion, presenting it at the right time. That's everything that's got me here. Now, if you've had four decades practice of having all the ideas and being good at the ideas too, like blindingly intelligent people, captains of industry, um, and somebody comes along and goes, hey, want you to slow down? Want you Like you don't have all the answers. That might not actually even be true. They might. What we want to do, though, is we want to move more slowly towards certainty. And in the pace of moving towards the conclusion, there's space for curiosity. There's space for conversation. There's space to role model the growth mindset and just pumping the brakes just enough to demonstrate to other folks um, that actually we're working this one out as we go. And I don't want you to be held captive by the dominance of one brilliant leader. Because I, I mean, if we want a growth mindset to show up in our teams, which we do, um, it's helpful to role model it. And we don't wanna role model the growth mindset in some like alpha competitive pursuit by demonstrating how much we know compared to what we used to know. That's not demonstrating the growth mindset. That's just demonstrating more of, I believe I have to have all the answers. And so intellectual humility is understanding it in two parts. First, there's the, the humility part, which comes in two bits. Humility is knowing when you're at the edge of your capability or your capacity or your potential, but then also the willingness to put your hand up and tell people, forecast that, hey, I'm on the edge here. I don't know. I'm out of ideas. Without freaking out, without running away, without obfuscating, without changing the question, without doing all of those things. Intellectual humility is almost a thrilling thing when you can find it. It's It's amazing. For somebody who's genuinely growth-minded, when they run out and you know it, you're like, oh, this is awesome. I'm at the edge of something here. Like, I'm, cool, can anybody help me out here? And you crowdsource the wisdom, you get better together. Worst case scenario, your team sees you actively learning and they're made better for it. Best case scenario, you get an idea and you move into the future for something that you didn't know before. In both cases, it's a gorgeous thing to practice. Intellectual humility, moving more slowly towards certainty, knowing the difference between what you know for sure and what you're kind of just pulling off because you've got a track record of doing it. I'm also thinking as a parent as well. Oof. Yeah. Like how much does that show up when you're when you're leading small humans and you know, your desire I have found in business, um, you know, I'm okay saying I don't have the answers and it, it's not easy especially when you know often you are paid to come up with ideas and to say you know what let's let's explore this I'm, I'm at my edges right now but it's another thing altogether when you are so invested in the the health and the thriving of this human being or, or number of human beings in your world and they look at you for the answer and you don't have one and and I will bluff like yeah. I'll put my hand up I will <laughs> bluff that out to give oh, them a sense of certainty as opposed yeah. to what you're talking about right now which is giving them an opportunity for them to see you yeah in a moment as of a uncertainty human. and how you navigate it yeah I mean I've only had seven years practice as a dad seven year uh, old daughter three-year-old boy but I think prescription and description applies there too like this is not accidentally shifting gears to like a chat with Gabo Mate or anything like that. But 
for the things that I do know, for the things where Zan, my eldest daughter, is asking a question based on insecurity, that's going to be captured by me in genuine observation. Like, am I really paying attention here? Because the question might come out as a question around the day, but really the subtext might be, hey, dad, I'm feeling a little bit insecure and shaky here. So that's a moment for being big and being, and, and she can cling to the, the security and the certainty that I have. Me, however, having an answer for all the questions that she has convinces her that, I, number one, that I have all the answers and number two, that she doesn't. So I'll give her gimmies. So she'll say, hey, dad, what is the capital of such and such? Now, I know the answer. Like, I've been looking at that globe for the longest time. And I'll go, I don't know. Let's find out together. Let's go to the bookshelf and open up the thing. And so simultaneously, she gets the learning. She gets this kind of like bubbly experience of dad not knowing all the answers. I genuinely remember a time, maybe two years ago, where I said, hey, Zan, just so you know, I don't know everything. And her response, hand on heart, was, you don't? She was convinced because like, I'm big, I got a beard, I've got no hair, I'm old, I'm grown up. Like, you must have all the answers, right? No, 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 absolutely not. And that ability to see me as, as a human, yes, as dad, yes. I mean, I remember looking at my parents probably only like when I was 23 or 24. I know different folks are gonna be different, but when I started seeing them as Stephen and Dawn, not parental unit number one and parental unit number two. And it dawned on me, holy smokes, they've got fears and hopes and aspirations of their own. I've only ever looked at them as roll, roll. And I want my daughter to look at me as a guy that's working it out as much as anybody else. Because I figure I'll be able to like be big and certain in the moments where she needs it most. But I also want to demonstrate the fact that you get to make this up, that you get to like find your own way in this thing. You know, I, you reminded me, I so remember that moment. I remember the exact moment, you know, cause my dad's big, you know, beard and engineer and smart, smart as hell. Um, and in a kind of an academic way, you know, my mom exceptionally smart, but more in a kind of lived experience hustler kind of a way. But I felt like my dad was a walking encyclopedia. There was nothing that he did not know. And I still remember sitting at the dining room table one day and bringing some homework and was doing my homework and saying, Hey, Doug, can you have a look at this problem for me? And it was a maths problem. And he walked over and it was, he said it so flippantly. He walked over first time in my life. I must've been like 14, 14 years of believing he knew everything. And he walked over and he looked over my shoulder and he was like, nobody. I, did. <laughs> <laughs> I remember like being devastated, like yeah. devastated that how did you treat that moment so lightly? What you mean? <laughs> you just broke my heart. <laughs> illusion shattered. Yeah. Illusion shattered. And you know, a, a beautiful illusion and also to have mirrored for your daughter that we're all making this up. We're just doing our absolute best here and we can explore and we can find answers. And, you know, to, to quote Glenn and Dor, we can do hard things like it's imperfectly. We can do hard things. Talking of doing hard things again, one of the beautiful things about you is one thing inevitably leads to another. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about the last two, three years mm, yeah. for you. And it's been a, it's been a big, big journey. You had the, I don't want to make it small by encapsulating into sentences, but 
you know, you had the pandemic, the impact on your business, and then we had the floods here in Australia, which had a devastating effect on your family, your community, and your home. One of, and you can speak to that as much as you, as much as you want to, but one of the things I know and I love to be true about you is you are so conscious about how you show up. You are so clear and absolutely with precision about how you want to show up for your family, as a partner, for your team. Can you talk a little bit about that time and what what became your through line there? What became your true north when everything was falling apart? What did you focus on when it came to showing up? Huh. Showing up, just trying to like face up to the day. I think most days uh, for uh, portions of that. I mean, if you go back to like the start of the pandemic and this isn't just kind of like um, indulging in our stories because I think everybody has a story really similar to this. There, no one escaped that thing. Um, and so this is honoring like all the different experiences that people had. Um, but Jess and I, like we were on the road. Um, Jess, my wife, has a video production company that she's brought into the practice that we have now. Um, leading into the pandemic, I was on the road 120, 130 nights a year for 10 years straight. Um, traveling internationally, spending time in the room with folks. And obviously that stopped very, very fast. We had a full forward year's worth of business get plucked from the calendar within two weeks. And I remember sitting at the kitchen counter with Jess, looking at the finances that we still had in our account, going, we'll, look, we'll be okay, but we do need to be thoughtful about this. What if this sticks around? Now, we didn't have to worry about that too long, thankfully, because the world went digital and we went digital too. Jess's video production skills got folded into our practice and we started doing very, very large scale events for our partners and, and that was beautiful. Now that was a season enough. Odin, our son, was born, he's three now, but he was born on set for Boston Consulting Group, like our first digital show. Um, Jess was our executive producer. Um, and I could see this was in the days where like you could have people there, but they had to be well spread out and all of this kind of thing. And I could see from like the stage where we were and she was in like the production booth and very heavily pregnant and she went into labor and then Odin came out 40 minutes later. Now we were able to make it to the hospital, but Odin was born on set during the pandemic. And it's not a terrible metaphor for what happened. He arrived at say 5 p.m. in the afternoon, 4 p.m. in the afternoon. And then the show for Boston Consulting Group was at 4 a.m. the next morning. So I stuck around until, you know, like the ward was shut down for the evening. I drove home, got some sleep, got back up in the vampire hours and got on set and banged it out. This was a very challenging time for everybody in this blend of his family and his continuity and his life. What we decided as a family um, is that we would we would want to raise our family in a place where there was more space to breathe. We moved to the Northern Rivers um, at the tail end of the pandemic. And eight weeks after we bought this home and moved here um, was the, the worst flood in recorded Australian history. Now, there are towns that were impacted um, deep, 15 metres of rushing water in Lismore. We had six feet of water through our house, another six feet off the street on top of that. And we got uh, displaced for nine months. Some of the greater lessons I think we learned, um, instant empathy, instant empathy. 
Because if you've had a life that is relatively privileged, and of course it is, like I'm white, I'm tall, I'm an English speaking man, like mine's been a life of privilege and it's not something that I'm waving, it's just the reality. But to come face to face with an experience that is wildly out of your control, that is physically endangering your kids for like weeks and months after we got picked up by small boat um, from uh, like hip deep water on our balcony in the front of our house. A boat came into the front yard. We put the kids and this is brown water. You couldn't see anything underneath. There's snakes in the water. There's rats running along the top. Um, this is very, like, this was full on for us. And to have for weeks and months afterwards, having those parent wake up dreams, those ones where you think, ah, I'm glad like we made Odin and we got Odin into the boat as a two year old. I'm glad that this all happened. It all came together for us. But nine months um, rebuilding the house, rebuilding the office, the business is still exploding um, and trying to get it all done. You'll understand this one, and I hope I'm not like overdoing these stories here, but a week after the water had gone down, I'd spent three or four days mucking out the house, two inches worth of mud, just getting it out of the house so we could get started. There's not much more you can do after that, waiting in until insurance cycles kick in and do all of those things. But a week after that, um, I was in Sydney I had to fly down to Sydney to host an experience, a digital experience for Microsoft where we had 30,000 people on it live. A week before, I'd had the most shattering physical and emotional experience. My family's back up here on the Northern Rivers, sleeping on the floor of uh, people that we had only just met who had opened their house to us so that we would have a place to stay as the whole region came back together. And I'm staying in the Western in Sydney so that I could get on to set the next day and show up and inspire people around how to build a great... And it, this was a very tumultuous experience. And I don't know what I learned there except for the ability to dig in and draw on um, things that you had put into your heart in previous years. But I do remember between, between you and me, Jules, sitting backstage or in the green room, and this is at TV studios in Sydney, waiting to go worldwide for 30,000 people, um, thinking to myself, I'm not up to this today. I'm not sure that I can do it. And then as the minute came closer, going, let's do it. Now, I'm still not convinced that this was um, like at my own expense or in service of the people. But I think leaders have these experiences in their life where life happens at the same time as the ask that is placed on us. And so through that entire year, I think we've had a whirlwind experience of um, finding out how strong we are, finding out how essential family is, finding parts of our heart that hadn't been explored yet, knocking on the door of what we thought were strengths, but was actually just bravado. We have a, a saying in our household, and you can fill in the blanks here, that love isn't love until love is tested. You could say trust isn't trust until trust is tested. You could say strength isn't strength until strength is tested. Resolve isn't resolve until resolve is tested. Care for community 
isn't care for community until it's tested. And I think last year, we had the opportunity to test a whole bunch of assumptions that we had made about ourselves and who we, were, who we are and who we were that now we know for sure about a whole bunch of things. And so truthfully, we figure if we've been able to pull off the things that we've done in the last couple of years in that, poof, should be okay going forward into the future. You know, you asked me in there whether I thought you were, whether I felt like you were overbaking it. I actually, I feel like you underbaked it. <laughs> and I say that because, you know, witnessing you through it, that moment, and, I, and I've heard you describe it and I've heard Jess describe it. And anyone who's listening to this who, who lost or mm -hmm. who had their world devastated by any one of the things that mm -hmm. you just described. Um, I remember you talking about, or it might've been just this moment where you can feel the water rising mm -hmm. and you have to make a decision about whether you leave or whether you stay. Mm -hmm. And a neighbor had said to you, no, you know, the, the waters have never risen, mm -hmm. you know, they've never risen past this point. They probably never will, you know, in a hundred years mm -hmm. for you to make those choices when you have two small children next to you mm -hmm. and the water is steadily rising around under your feet. And you have to decide whether to get on a boat or whether to stay. I think that that those moments, you know, they stay with you. Mm -hmm. They stay with you. And you know the the parent dream that you talk about. You know, I have I have plenty mm -hmm. plenty of those. And just the way that you show up and the way that Jess shows up as parents, as leaders for each other in those moments, mm -hmm. I just think is is beautiful and, and humble and very real, mm. very, very real. You put a quote up during that time on Instagram and, and I wrote it down and it said, going through things you never thought you'd go through only takes you places you never thought you'd get to. Morgan mm -hmm. Harper Nichols. Where did it, where mm. did it take you looking back now? Where has it taken you? I think, Personally, I have thought about this one. Um, I would say empathy has been created in ways that it, it hasn't been before. I think there, there have been times when I have been quite convinced for all the things that we've talked about, having the answers, looking like you've got it together, actually thinking you've got it together, all of that stuff. Well, you attend to the reality of what actually is. And so I think we can even have sight on ideas and aspirations for ourselves. There are these things that we think we're about because we've been thinking it for years and years and years. We've been cycling the idea, but it never moves out of here and into here. And at risk of this sounding like a line because it kind of is, but the opportunity to make principles into personal practices. I think for all the conversation that we've had today around um, showing up for yourself, developing self-compassion, um, incubating intellectual curiosity or intellectual humility, all of these things I think are born out of tough times. I don't think you sit um, in privilege, in comfort. I mean, the North Face had this beautiful um, catalog years ago with all of its favorite climbers, the North Face, like beautiful company. Um, 
and one of the the climbers the line was um uh my hardest achievements uh, or my greatest achievements weren't earned with a full stomach or a comfortable pillow um and it's kind of stuck with me this idea that we shouldn't despise comfort this this isn't the point like don't run into the forest just for fun um, the idea here, though, is that like actually the deeper, the richer, the more beautiful parts of us are born out of the tough times. This is why all the great myths and all the great faiths and all the great spiritual ideas share this common ground around suffering. And so I think one of the great and practical lessons is that Jess and I learned to receive help. You know, for like the first two days while I was mucking mud out of my house, um, People walked past and offered to help. No, 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 I'm good. I'm, ah, great. Thanks so much. That's, that's really lovely. You know, because for 39 years, I had never said yes to help because I was convinced that if it was going to happen, I had to do it by myself. And that's where strength and that's where having it all together. On the third day, um, shout out um, to the crew uh, from Thrills Company in Byron Bay because they shut down their retail store that day and they sent all their staff out and half a dozen young people showed up on my doorstep and they forced their way into the house and said we're helping you and I said thank you so much and they accepted the help and they got done in one afternoon what would have taken me two or three days even just this recognition of these stubborn aspects of our life that we call strength that are actually not it's guff and it's bravado and it's a false strength watching some of those things give way what have we learned? Compassion, community, empathy, and that sense of gentle strength that is different than force. There's force and there's strength. And I think in times past as a leader, I've been forceful. Where now I think I, I know a little bit more about what strength is. And it probably stitches in quite nicely with what you describe as fierce grace. Mm. Gentle strength, mm. being able to hold two seemingly divisive ideas and put them both in the palm of your hand and close your hand mm. over them. Mm. Mm. What is my last question? I have many that we ah. have not touched upon. However, I will make this my last. What idea are you doubling down on right now? Well, I know you play mm. with a lot and you've said, you know, you'll hold on to one until you actually put it into action. What are you yeah. putting into action? What are you, where are you doubling down? I think it's got to be about the ability to process. I think it really does. I mean, for all the lines, look, here's my like my notes to myself, my dump this morning. Um, now, this wasn't even planned for this, right? But here's six little things that all add up to the same thing. Too busy to be brilliant? Question mark. Do less better? What would it take for me to do the best work of my life? That's about leading yourself. But what about this? You cannot lead what you do not understand. You can't give what you do not have. And we lead others in the way that we lead our own selves. That's about leading others. All these tiny little hooks that really just add up to the idea of the way that we lead others can only ever be a direct reflection of the way that we lead ourselves. And if I'm going to lead myself, I can't fill my life wall to wall with just tasks that are either a great idea, somebody else's idea for me, Right, right in the heart then of leading myself, leading others, making impact, making change, all of those beautiful things cannot be done in this moment of existence for humanity.
without the time to slow down and process. And so really that opportunity to process, everything that we've been talking about today, I don't want to be too busy to be brilliant. And I want to always encourage the leaders that I work with to do less better. Are you too busy to be brilliant? I think that's the big thing for me right now is the value and the power of slowing down just long enough to process. Doesn't mean hours and hours and hours a day. Just means just long enough. And I might mean different things on different days. Thank you so much. I've been dying to talk to you for ages and it was worth every second of of the welcome. That was good. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea or brand in your space, then I have good news. You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands-down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.